Shalom. Welcome again to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your time. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address. Uh, we are having these podcasts to really examine some of the issues that are, associate us with our longevity. And uh, we're concluding a four-part series today uh, that uh, has talked a little bit about general geriatrics with a geriatrician, some of the economic challenges of aging, uh, this growth in meditation for many of our generation. And we're going to finish with um, Dr. Stephen Goldfein, uh, who we welcome back to uh, Seekers of Meeting. Dr. Goldfein is the Chief Medical Officer for Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice here in Southern New Jersey. And we want to talk about an issue that keeps coming up over and over again in all the workshops that we do. Dr. Goldfein, welcome. It's so nice to see you again. And and, and uh, again, a congratulations on the award that you just won a couple of months ago, um, I think, because I was there. I think it was in December. Yes. Uh, so congratulations again. Uh, Samaritan does wonderful, wonderful work, and, and, and you are very, very much part of it and an inspiration. So thank you. We are. Uh, we want to talk a little bit about, well, we want to talk a lot about an issue that keeps coming up over and over again. Uh, in a lot of the workshops that we've done as part of our work in Jewish Sacred Aging, we'll deal with uh, panels or individual workshops dealing with the end of life, uh, uh, pain management, and uh, the use of various types of medication. And often, in Q&A, somebody will raise a question of, I'm a caregiver for my mom, my dad, my spouse, etc., etc. And I've run across a situation where my loved one is seeing so many physicians that we have so many different medications. And once the pharmacist called me in and said, do you know that medication X does not necessarily get along with medication C? Could you walk me through this drug interaction challenge? How prevalent is it? How much do you are you engaged with it in, in, in Samaritan? And what can somebody do to, to guard against it? Yeah, this is a great topic. This is so valuable and so very important. Uh, we're seeing a lot of this right now, and about between 3 and 10% of hospital admissions are related to drug, uh, adverse drug events. Uh, and that means that um, it's a, a medication that's been used that causes harm. It could be a appropriate use of the medication, or it could be an inappropriate use of the medication. Um, we all, we want to differentiate that from what I would call allergies. So an allergy is like an antibiotic. You take an, an antibiotic and you develop shortness of breath or a rash. That's an allergy. It is an adverse drug event. But a lot of these adverse drug events are caused by the drugs themselves. So, for example, you get put on a medication which may cause a fall or may cause some confusion, especially in the elderly population. Um, we know that these are more likely in certain populations of people with certain amount of drugs. So when we look at medications that are medications, if you're on between five and seven medications, you're two times likely to have an adverse drug reaction. If you're on, it's big. And if you're on, if you're on more than eight medications, you're four times more likely to have an adverse drug reaction. So the more medications that you're on, the worse the problem uh, becomes and becomes more significant because some of these adverse drug reactions really do affect quality life and longevity immensely. So for example, take an elderly patient and they fall and break a hip. That could be a, honestly a life-threatening uh, incident and it can be very, very serious. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're paying very close attention to these, to these interactions. Believe it or not, a lot of the interactions that we see are not just prescribed medication, but are medication like over-the-counter medication. So for example, anti-inflammatory medicines, 
ibuprofen, naproxen that you just buy for pain relief cause a large majority of these uh, adverse reactions because they interact with a lot of medications that you may be taking. Uh, and, then herb, and then herbs too, because we always think the herbs are safe. You know? So people are on all sorts of herbs for, you know, for depression, anxiety, for all sorts of things, but they also interact with your medications. So really understanding those interactions become very, very important. Do you, mean, do you mean like like somebody because a lot of people take supplements yeah. like a, a St. John's or whatever or yeah. whatever and they think it's just you know it's natural and it gets but the, these as well well how do you guard it how does somebody how does somebody guard against and not everybody's going to sit there and read every single label I mean you know I I have all this stuff I got a headache I'll go pop a couple of Advil and I'll feel great yeah so I, I think the important part is when, when being your own advocate is really important. But I also think working with your physician, uh, and I know doctors always seem pressed for time, but this is a really important issue. There was an interesting study that was done. They looked at patients that were being discharged from the hospital, and the doctors believed 89% of the time that the patients understood all of the drug interactions. When they surveyed the, when they, yeah, when they surveyed the patients, only about 58% of patients really understood what the doctors were telling them. So there's a disconnect between what the physicians believe and what the patients believe. And that means we need to take more time within this area. So what I would always recommend is there a way of looking at how we prescribe medication. Um, I think it's different in different environments. So when you're in your doctor's office, uh, that's different than the hospital, that's different than a nursing home. But what I would always say is make sure you have a very up-to-date, accurate drug list, that you know what medications you're taking, you've written down the name of the medication, uh, the brand name, and the generic, because... With those generic medications, I can't pronounce half of them, and I know my patients can't pronounce half of them. Uh, write down the dose of the medication. Write down how often you're taking it, uh, and if you're having effects from that, and what those effects actually are. And that way, when you go see the physician, they can kind of review that with their chart. Um, I always laugh because we have this new, this new electronic medical record, which is supposed to make us much more efficient in communication. Well, I'm doing a lot of visits with patients in the community right now, uh, for primary care, and I look at hospital discharges, as well as what the patients have in their house, as well as their pill bottles, and oftentimes none of those match together. So we need to make sure we have a very good, accurate drug list. Uh, there's also something called the, the brown bag checkup, which means put all of your medications in a brown bag and bring them to your doctor's office. So they see all of the medications, and I mean every medication that you have in your house that you might take, whether it's a scheduled medication or a, a medication that you might use for a symptom. So you mentioned, you know, Tylenol or an Advil, uh, maybe even, you know, medication you use for diarrhea uh, over the counter. So bring all the medications that you might take, bring them into your physician's office and let that doctor spend the time, actually probably have to make that doctor spend the time to write them down accurately and put them into your chart uh, and make sure that they are as accurate as possible. And that way that will help prevent some of those medications. Then where, who gets this? If you make this list, who gets that list? Do you just carry it with you or do you just give it to everybody? Yeah, I, I would give it to everybody. Um, I would carry it with me. I remember, again, we talked about, about these EMRs, electronic medical records. They don't, all, they don't all communicate with each other. You know? And so even though if, if your doctor in their office changes it in their record, it may not get to the hospital record. So I would bring a list with me. I'd give it to all my providers. I make sure that everyone uh, that I see from a medical perspective has that. I would also make sure my family has an accurate list because that way, if I am in the hospital and I can't speak for myself, at least the family knows what you're taking and makes it easier for you to get the care that you need. So how important would this machine be? 
Um, can you, can you, would you advise actually having somebody or a grandchild uh, or a, a, the caregiver list, put that list on the phone? I, I would actually do that. And actually, um, I take a few minutes patients myself and I have a list on my phone uh, and I match that list. I, I, I go to the CVS also. So my pharmacy has a list of the medications. So I compare my list to the pharmacy list. So absolutely, I would do that. There are a number of apps. Uh, and if you look, you, I know you held up, held up an Apple phone. There's, you know, Apple has Apple Health. There's a number of health apps that you can actually record those, those um, prescriptions in there. But again, make sure they're accurate. When they change, we need to update them uh, on our app, on our apps too. And if you're carrying a piece of paper, make sure that list is also updated on a regular basis. So two, two follow-up questions that you raised. And this is really, this is why we, we wanted to do this. This is so important. And thank you again. Um, how important is it for somebody to have uh, the advocate walk into that final meeting with the doctor when they go over the prescriptions or in the hospital and actually write it down? Because I may not hear everything that I'm being told. And two, how important is the family pharmacist? Yes, they're great questions. I, I think that anytime we can get an advocate helping a patient out, when, when you're sick and in the hospital, um, you're not feeling well. You're, you're, you see many, many, many physicians and nurse practitioners and nurses, and half the time you don't really know who's talking to you anyway. Um, the doctors are writing their own, doing their own thing. So, you know, a specialist, a heart doctor is writing for heart medications, a, you know, a, a, a kidney doctor is writing for kidney medications. There's supposed to be a primary doctor in the hospital, what, what I call a hospitalist or uh, internist, uh, who's supposed to be looking over all of those things, but it's not always coordinated to uh, the level that I would like to see it or that I think we would like to see in this country. Um, and when they tell you a lot of discharge instruction, and we're getting a lot of written stuff now, we have to make sure it's correct. And a lot of times, once it gets into that computer system, it never gets taken out. And so what I've seen a number of times is that you change a dose of a medication. So if, say, for example, you double the dose of medication, you may have both of those medications on that med list, with, and it gets very confusing because nobody has stopped the old medication when they start the new medication. So having that advocate is, is so valuable, uh, something that can really help be another set of ears and eyes uh, to do that. Um, I, I am, I'm saddened by the loss of local pharmacists. I, I, I think that, that that was really uh, you know, the, the, the private guy. We're seeing a lot of big chains, and a lot of big chains do, do a fantastic job. Um, it's getting to know your pharmacy. It's getting to know your pharmacist. Um, unfortunately, they're very stressed at this moment in time. There's a, there's been a, a shortage of pharmacists, but getting to know who they are and uh, having them review their medications. A lot of their systems will uh, look for drug interactions, and they will notify your physician uh, if they've prescribed, uh, for example, an antibiotic for for a cold that you may be having may interact with one of your other medications that you're taking uh, normally. So the pharmacist will hopefully hopefully interact with the physician that way why you mentioned this I, I i'm i don't know how many people would be aware of this but why there, there's a shortage of the pharmacists how come i i think it's with with all healthcare, unfortunately and i think we're, we're seeing that a lot of a lot of people are not just not going into healthcare. Healthcare has been a really difficult business over this last four years since covid and a lot of people have really dropped out of healthcare. care i think that has really led to some really some crises within uh healthcare uh, providers, whether it be pharmacists, whether it be nurses in the hospital, whether it be physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, it's a, it's, it is becoming a, a more serious problem. I, I, I sit with my, my colleagues and we're, and we're all trying to hire 
uh, new providers, new physicians, new nurses. And it's, trust me, it's very, very difficult to do that, um, which then makes the system more stressed because, again, go, going back to drug interactions, we as doctors are used to working with the pharmacists. We're, working, we're used to working with our nurses to make sure the medicines are right. Uh, and if those resources are not necessarily there, it can lead to even more problems with drug drug interactions. It, it, it seems that really, uh, again, uh, we have to be in many ways our own best advocate in, in all of this as we try to negotiate and navigate this system. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it's important that, that, again, that we understand what our medications are. We understand what our, our drugs are. We also, I think, take time to reflect on when new meds are being started, uh, which I think is very important. So you go see your physician for a complaint of something. The first question is whether that can be handled in a non-pharmacologic way. So you mentioned meditation, you mentioned, you know, heating pads, you, you know, ice, you know, are, are there other ways to, to manage that without taking medications? Uh, and I would actually really recommend to uh, the other population, try not to take any medications if possible for a new problems, if it's, if it's possible. If it's not possible, then you have to take them, obviously. But if, if it's a, a sleep problem or if it's a symptom problem, then try to get around it in other non-pharmacologic ways. Um, the next part of that would be if you're starting new medications, Ask your doctor, is there anything I can stop? So oftentimes we have problems that have, we've been taking medications for a very long time. So for example, heartburn or what they call reflux disease. Uh, oftentimes those medications can be stopped, you know, three, four, five months down the road, but they get continued over and over again. Do we actually need those medications, especially if we're starting new medications, trying to re reduce that number as much as possible? And then also asking, is there a safer alternative? Uh, and so an example of that is something called blood thinner, something called Coumadin, which is a very common blood thinner. We now have safer alternatives in certain populations of people uh, that really may save some of these adverse drug reactions. So there's something that is safer for those patients. And then finally, the question to ask is, what is the goal of this treatment? So I'm taking, I'm 95 years old, I'm taking a cholesterol medication. Is it really going to help me? Um, can I be offered that? Because, you know, honestly, all the damage that could happen over the next five, 10 years at my age at 95 may not happen. Uh, we know that, we know from diabetes, we used to be very concerned about control of diabetes, very, very low blood sugars. But right now, some of the better survival data is people that have a little bit less control on their blood sugars. So take less medication. So really evaluating where you are in your stage of life and whether the medications you're using are gonna be effective within your life makes a big difference. And we're talking to Dr. Stephen Goldfein, the Chief Medical Officer for Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice in Southern New Jersey on this whole issue of drug interaction and how we can deal with it, be aware of it, be our own self-advocate, etc. cetera. Um, Dr. Goldfein, is some of this cultural? By that I mean, is the American culture and uh, whatever pharmacological, pharmacological, medical complex, whatever you're label you want to give it is it so pointed towards if you have an issue take a pill get a prescription i mean if you just i sometimes tell classes go just takes between six o'clock and seven o'clock at night just watch the local news and you look at the stuff that's being average it used to be when we were kids cars and beer now it's drugs and and, and you're exactly right. It is. It's very cultural for a lot of reasons. I think, I think Americans like quick fixes. You know, we, we want that 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 thing that's going to make us feel better. Uh, though oftentimes that doesn't really make us feel better and causes more problems. So, just as an example, antibiotics for a cold. Um, 
in, in our mind, we've been taught that antibiotics, you know, you take them for the for cold, we want to get fixed. But most colds in this country are viral colds, and they don't really get better with antibiotics. So we're exposing our bodies to a potentially uh, serious drug, adverse drug effect uh, or complications of, the, of that antibiotic. Um, I think also you're right, too. I think that our drug companies um, are very smart in their marketing. And I, I, I look at, I, I, I see all of the ads, um, and we, are, we, we have gotten culturally uh, used to taking medications. Um, but also, I think culturally is important because other cultures, if we look at the culture of the United States, people are used to taking herbs, for example. They're used to taking over-the-counter medications. Uh, and I think we just discount those as the potential of having other adverse reactions, um, which I think is important. Um, part of this, you know, we are assuming that people live next to each other. But as you know, and, I, and the long-distance care, how, how does somebody who's trying to manage the care for somebody who's a 1,000 miles away deal with, deal with some of these issues about prescriptions and drugs when they're not they're not there to drive mom or dad to the pharmacist or the doctor. Is it, can you just speak to that? Because I'm sure you deal with it. Yeah, I, I think I think communication uh, is really important. And I think that sometimes we we mean the medical system doesn't always value family input into the discussion. You held up your phone a little bit a little bit uh, a while ago. I I will tell families, and I think it's not bad to ask your physician. Can my daughter be on the phone? Can I? You know, can we do a video call with my daughter? Uh, and I think that's a really valuable tool right now that we should be using for, for some of those. Uh, I know that we're doing some telehealth in my practice, and our telehealth platform actually has a way you can, you can conference call in the family uh, to, the, to the visit. So there's ways of doing that. Uh, but I think really, you know, using our technology, because, again, being a thousand, mile, thousand miles away is really difficult, uh, and we see it all the time. But really uh, demanding from your physician you know, having your loved one on the phone, uh, whether it be just an audio call or a video call, I think is, is very appropriate. Uh, and if your physician says, no, I don't want that, you need to have a conversation with them about, you know, why not? Because the more involvement, uh, I always look at medicine as a team sport. I think the, the more involvement we have with families, uh, the better the care the patient's going to get. Well, that's, that's again, it, it's one of the messages here, again, is you really have to, and, and a family concept, uh, be your own best advocate. That, that's why so many people now are um, advocating a family care plan to talk about these things to really say, you know, uh, I don't live, I don't live next door. I live in Chicago and you're in Cherry Hill or in New Jersey. And how are we going to develop a care plan that makes sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is really, it, it's vitally important, vitally important, which is again, I thank you for for, for joining us and talking about this thing. What your, you, if I'm not mistaken, and full disclosure, I do work with, with the Samaritan Hospice in a couple of uh, ways, but you're also known as a specialist in palliative care medicine, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the whole, the development of palliative care, one of the myths, which I need you to talk about, is this myth of, well, palliative care uh, is only at the end of life. If, so first of all, you could define what is palliative care and talk about its use and uh, expanded use and its benefit. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, palliative care really is a specialty, um, just like a cardiologist, just like a pulmonary specialist, a lung specialist. Uh, what our focus is really is on a couple of things. One is on 
establishing goals of care for the patient uh, based upon their quality of life. And what I mean by that, if, if somebody has, I'll use cancer for an example, if they, have, if they have a cancer diagnosis, the goal may be, doc, I want to get treated and I want to get cured. So now my job is help them through that process of getting cured. If they have a curable disease, we're all in to take care of them, make sure that they get the best care possible. We do that by managing their symptoms. And so what we know with patients that have advanced illness, whether it be cancer, heart disease, lung disease, is they have symptoms like shortness of breath, like pain, like anxiety, and like depression. We know that if those symptoms are not managed, their outcomes are not good. But by helping the patient with the management of those symptoms and supporting their goals of care, we have a better outcome for patients, and they live longer, and they live better. Uh, it has nothing to do with what I would call hospice care, which is the last six months of your life. And hospice patients are patients that have gone through their care and unfortunately have not had the outcome that any of us wish. They actually are now in a terminal position. Uh, and hospice allows them to be comfortable in their home environment or their environment of choice uh, and have a dignified uh, death at that point in time. Uh, I have many patients with back to palliative care, with palliative care that I see through their cancer treatments, and I see them into what they call recovery. Um, and what happens with some cancer patients is that unfortunately they do have symptoms after their treatment. So for example, you can get some nerve damage from the chemotherapy, and that nerve damage can be lifelong. Well, I support them. I take care of them. I manage their symptoms over a long period of time. I've been taking care of some of my palliative care patients for 10 years now, uh, and they're living normal lives and they're living you know, uh, the best they possibly can and the best quality they possibly can, um, which is very different from end-of-life care. Is it safe to say that um, because of medical technology and because of the advancements in palliative care, that there's no reason for any human being to suffer uh, extraordinary pain? I, I would say yes. And I, I would I'd come back to culture for a second because some cultures, you know, believe in pain. And, and, you know, again, it comes down to focusing on what is important to that patient. I think symptoms can, can be managed very aggressively and patients can live the life that they want to live based upon their goals of care. But I, but when I, it hurts my heart when I hear stories of patients that have gone through treatment that have unmanaged symptoms, have unmanaged pain, uh, have not had conversations about that treatment, uh, have not had a good discussion about what's important to them and what makes their life high quality. Because, you know, we all want to live for as long as we possibly can live. But what's more important is we want to live in a quality way. And a quality way means that we're not suffering. Well, there's a whole group now of literature, and this comes up, and I've seen a couple of articles on this, about the difference between health span and lifespan. Yeah. Yes. And, 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 I'm, and now, given the fact of what your specialty is and what we're talking, I'm sure you deal with this in a, in a, in a very practical day-to-day -day basis. Could you just comment on that? I mean, it, medical technology can extend life. Yes. Yes. So but. I, yeah. So Go ahead. I, yeah, so I, I, I think that's a great concept because I think you have to think about, you know, is my body just alive and there, or am I having a good quality that has interaction with my environment, with my family? And I think part of it is defining what's important to you. And I, you know, and I, I tell patients all the time, it's not my goals of care, it's your goals of care. You have to decide what's important to you. Uh, and if, you know, interacting with your family is important, you know, we can extend your life with things like feeding tubes and breathing machines, but you're not going to be able to do that. You're going you're gonna to be basically, you know, in a nursing home, you know, maybe on a ventilator with a feeding tube in your stomach, not engaged with your family. And so what is important to that health span is living healthy for as long as you can uh, and defining what healthy means to you. I saw a patient yesterday 
who unfortunately has pretty severe MS. Uh, but she decided to get a feeding tube placed because she still can interact with her family. She still, you know, enjoys that. She plays cards with them. She does everything that keeps her um, engaged with her kids and her grandkids. Um, she told me though that the moment that happens, I don't really want to, you know, I'm, I'm done at that moment. I made me comfortable. And so she had a very good definition of what was important to her. Again, longevity, birth, healthy living, and health span. Yeah, I, this is a, an increasingly important conversation. It comes up in a lot of the workshops. And for the people watching or listening, you, you should know that the, our, our tradition, the Jewish tradition, has lots to say about this and really comes down on the the mood of our tradition on comfort care. In fact, uh, my department, when I, for the old days of the Union of Reformed Judaism, we helped write the resolution on comfort care at the end of life. And the, all the major denominations are in favor of resolution-wise, statement-wise on hospice care, comfort care, palliative care. Um, so if you're thinking about what does our tradition say, it, it has to say, in fact, there's even a series of responsa on relieving the pain of a dying patient and the use of medication on this concept of double effect, the principle of double effect. Could you comment on that? I mean, I'm sure you deal with it all the time. Yeah, so, so I think, again, thinking about what the goal of your treatment actually is. And so that's always, as a physician, we're always, I'm, at least I'm personally aware of, you know, what do my actions have? So double effect basically says that if your intentions are good, uh, you can administer the medicines needed to make sure somebody is comfortable. Uh, and I think that's really important because when we look at, at end-of-life care, we use very aggressive medications. We use things called morphine. We use Ativan, which is a sedative medication. Um, I will tell you that most of the time, patients get comfort from the medication, but these medications do not necessarily shorten life. The disease process shortens life. And actually, if, if somebody's more comfortable, they actually can live longer. I've seen a number of patients that have been suffering and, and really beginning to, to uh, decrease and decline very quickly. We get them comfortable and they are living a wonderful life with their family. And so, again, the medicines don't necessarily do that, but I think the ultimate goal is what are my intentions? What am I trying to accomplish? And if that is a, if that is a positive thing in terms of relieving suffering, then whatever medicines you use are appropriate to use within that. Right. And, and again, Judaism sees no theological value in pain and suffering I mean, they, across the denominational line. I mean, this is, uh, there's, we're not, we're not proving anything. Uh, so this is why it is really, really important for people to understand this. And so if you as a, as a family member sit down with your family and develop some sort of care plan and end of life plan, please keep in mind that, that, uh, that our tradition is, is very humane and human when it, when it comes to this stuff. So Dr. Goldfein, before we run out of time, um, what are, the, what are the key pieces of advice that you would want to send out to people who may be watching or listening to uh, this edition of Seekers of Meaning when it comes to the interaction? Uh, yeah, what I, are those things? Yeah, I, th I think the first, part, first thing we've mentioned is be an advocate for yourself. Uh, know your medications. Know the dose, know the strength, know how often you take them. Um, have a good, accurate medication list. Um, do a brown bag check-in, which means take all of your medicines to your physician and have them make sure they're accurate within their chart. Think about medicines that are over-the-counter as well as herbal medications as being medications that can interact with the drugs that you're taking. Uh, when you're 
being started on a new medication, ask about the side effects, ask the doctor to check the side effects, uh, and also ask if there's a way that you can reduce other medications uh, for a new medication. Simplify your regime. Uh, and the last thing I wanted to mention, I did not mention before, is think about cascades of medication. So for example, if you're constipated, and I see this happen all the time in nursing homes, patient is constipated, they give them a, a medication to make them move their bowels. Now they're having diarrhea. So now, now they add an, an, a medication to stop their bowels. So now they're on two medications, one to start their bowels, one to stop their bowels. You know, so we see that a lot in medicine where we're treating side effects of one medication with another medication, which then leads to more and more problems. So think about that, those kind of cascades of medicine. One, la one last question that uh, this comes up. I'm sure you've had people sitting in your office and they'll say, well, I, I, I may be getting this. I, I don't feel this. You're telling me I have this. So what I did was I went on the internet and and now I see all the things that could happen or the things that I'm really, do we, should I stay away from the internet when I have a condition or think I have a disease? I, I think the, the answer to that is I always enjoy an informed patient. Make sure you're, you're going to, to, to accurate sites, uh, you know, things like WebMD, the Mayo Clinic, you know, Harvard, go, go to sites that are, that, are, that are very accurate and very highly touted. If you're going to, you know, Joe's Medical Advice, that's probably not the right internet, you know, internet site to go to. Um, but be open to your physician um, and his management of that. Um, you know, we do have standards. Uh, there are protocols for certain diseases, but every doctor does a little bit differently. I think the important part with the internet, again, in drug interactions is that you can see every drug interaction. Remember that a lot of these drug interactions are not clinically important and the doctor can decide that, or adverse reactions to these medicines may not be very, very prevalent. Uh, and we do what they call a risk-benefit analysis. So uh, is the benefit of the medication worth the risk of the medication? So no drug is perfect. All drugs have you know, side effects and adverse drug reactions. We just have to balance that. So we want your physician to have that conversation with you. And each individual is different, right? And Correct. It, 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 they, I, I bring my genetic history yep. and my family of origin history and the person you'll see next, they bring their family of origin and genetics. And part of the, I guess the, the art or the practice of medicine is to try to understand each individual patient and that universe that they bring, uh, and and that'll would that that also would impact what medication I take. Is that correct? It, it is true, and I, and you know, and I I, and I tell patients a lot. You know, we have what the textbook says, and the textbook says may may say do this, do this, do this. But as we age, the textbooks have not been written for the elderly population. Uh, when we study drugs, we don't look at the, the, you know, the elderly population in a lot of the studies. And some of that's changing now. We hope for the best. Uh, but we don't know how certain drugs affect, you know, the 70 or 80 or 90 year old body. And we don't, we do know is that the body does process things differently as, as it ages. You know, the kidneys don't work as well. You know, the liver doesn't work quite as well. So the other things do happen. Uh, so it has to be tailored to, again, that patient, that patient's, um, goals of care, that patient's perspective and that patient's quality of life. Uh, as well as their longevity and some other things, and, and there and there are other medical problems, you know. And so you may have somebody that has four or five different medical problems; they may get treated differently than somebody that has one medical problem. So it, it has to be very individually tailored. You're exactly right. So, Dr. Stephen Goldfein, the Chief Medical Officer of Samaritan Healthcare and Hospice, uh, this is chock full of very, very valuable information. I really do appreciate it. Thank you again. Congratulate on your award and just. Stay safe, stay healthy, and continued success with all the work that you and Samarit 
uh, does. It's a magnificent institution, and you do great work and many mitzvahs every day. So thank you. And thank you very much for the opportunity. That was a great conversation. Thank you. Take care. To all of you, thank you again for listening or watching today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Uh, if you have a question or a comment about the podcast, please feel free to email me at rabbiaddress at jewishsacredaging.com. If you'd like to help uh, maintain these podcasts, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Go to the conveniently located donate button, click on it, and we do appreciate uh, any of the support. And if you or your organization would like to be a sponsor uh, for these series of podcasts, please again email me and we'll take it from there. Secrets of Meaning is produced at the Broadcast Center of Lubeckin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And a usual shout out to our tech guru, Steve Lubeckin. Thank you again, Steve. Thank you again for joining us. We do appreciate your time and your interest. Keep in touch. Until the next Secrets of Meaning, thank you very much for joining us. Please be kind to one another. We'll see you next time. Shalom.